Welcome to Twill, the Week in Health Law, the Keep Dreaming podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on April 2nd, 2018. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined by my co-host and Mark Zuckerberg frenemy. <laughs> Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. A great welcome this week to Jamila Mishina, an assistant professor in the Department of Government at Cornell University. Her research focuses on poverty and racial inequality in American politics. More specifically, her work explores two overarching themes, the conditions under which economically and racially disadvantaged groups engage in the political process, and the role of the state in shaping the political and economic trajectories of marginalized communities. Her uh, voluminous research has been supported by the Ford Foundation, the National Science Foundation, and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And her articles are in some of the best uh, political science and law journals. She's the author of a new book, Fragmented Democracy, Medicaid, Federalism, and Unequal Politics. It's just coming out from Cambridge University Press, and you should be able to find it on Amazon as you are listening to this. Vesla Weaver at Johns Hopkins said of the book, quote, I've not read a book in a better part of a decade where I learned as much or where my ideas of American federalism were so usefully challenged. So no pressure, Jamila. Welcome to the pod. <laughs> Thank you for having me. That is actually a lot of pressure, but I will try to handle it. Well, I just wanted to jump right in uh, with a question or questions about the nature of the evidence you provide in the book, Jamila, because I think it's uh, it's so interesting to see a book that is so grounded in talking day to day with people who are on Medicaid and who are using the uh, who are part of the Medicaid system, and to tie that sort of direct experience, their direct experiences, to much to these very abstract uh, debates about large scale political change and the nature of our political system. And so I was wondering if you could share with our listeners just so they get a sense of the, the flavor of the book. And, uh, and and it certainly ties in with last week's uh, discussion with Phil Rocco when we talked about comments on the Medicaid process. If, if you could discuss the methodology and what led you to a methodology of in-depth, uh, qualitative interviews with Medicaid beneficiaries. I really enjoy talking to people. I'm a people person. So on the most selfish level, that's probably what makes me... Uh, <laughs> I'm always drawn to understanding people people's experiences from their perspectives. And frankly, when I started this research, it was not about Medicaid or about health policy. It was about trying to understand poor people who lived um, in poor communities and what their lives were like and how their lives intersected with the state, with the government. And I started off in a sort of humble position, realizing I didn't necessarily know and I didn't want to assume I knew. So I went into these communities at the time I was a graduate student and, and I started doing interviews with people on the South and West sides of Chicago. And they brought up Medicaid and they talked about why it mattered to them. And they talked about why context and place and what state they lived in matter mattered. Um, and as I continued those interviews with Medicaid beneficiaries all over the country for a number of years, it became clear to me that academics had language that we used to describe the kinds of things that came up in the conversations. We talked about federalism and we talked about neighborhood context. And really the project became a sort of work that was connecting these these broad debates that 
we engage in as academics and the everyday experiences of people on the ground. So every abstract institution like federalism means something in people's lives. It's materialized. Um, and the really fun part of this book is getting to see from the perspective of people what, what that's like. And I look at other kinds of data, quantitative data, administrative data, but the fun stuff for me is really people's perspectives. And that's what drives the narrative. Yes. And I thought it was one of the most gripping openings to a book on empirical social science that I've read in some time. And I, I'm, I'm a big fan, by the way, of this book by Helen Sword called Stylish Academic Writing. And it's all about how you draw people into the story you're trying to tell. And I thought that the way you did it was just so compelling by bringing in voices that we just don't hear that much of, you know, because I feel like, especially because of the politicization even of health services research, there's a lot of pressure, I think, among conservatives to say Medicaid is, you know, worse than nothing or it's it's nothing at all. It's a, just a terrible program. And I think there's a lot of pressure among liberals to sort of respond to say, no, it's a great program. Everything's going well. What What is there to complain about? Um, and, and, and when you actually speak to people, you get a sense of both the highs and the lows of the Medicaid experience and particularly this question of the difference in different areas. And did you set out looking for people that had sort of moved around the country a lot or did that just come up as part of the precarity of being in uh, in the social class that sort of primarily dependent upon Medicaid? Yeah, no, I did not set out looking for those folks. It, it really did emerge as I talked to people. I would often start really broadly and say to people, well, what? tell me what your experience with Medicaid was like. And initially, I, I didn't re really even think to ask about place. And so it came up quite organically in conversations. Um, and part of that is connected to the sorts of lives that many low-income people live, where they're sort of looking for jobs, they're looking for opportunities. They're somewhat mobile, not mobile in the sense that they can move anywhere they want anytime, but mobile in the sense that they're sort of looking for opportunities and trying to thrive economically. And so they end up having experiences with Medicaid in different places. Uh, but I certainly didn't start out knowing that that's what the book was about. So I wasn't looking for it. And I know also in the appendix, you talk about, uh, you, you go through the 13 states that you would interview people in, and you had 45 interviews with the beneficiaries in Medicaid and 16 with stakeholders. When did you decide to bring the stakeholders in? That's great. So one of the things that I realized when I was talking to Medicaid beneficiaries would happen is that they would bring up other sorts of people in their lives who seem to matter. So they would talk about their healthcare navigators, or they would talk about a lawyer that they spoke to when they went to a legal services agency because their benefits got cut off. And it struck me during some of my early interviews that the healthcare system presents Medicaid beneficiaries with a real structure, an array of actors that they have to engage with in order to be able to get and maintain the services that they need. And so it, it occurred to me that I could talk to some of these other actors and that their perspectives could both complement, supplement, and corroborate what Medicaid beneficiaries were telling me. A lot of people would say, well, you're talking to these folks, they're going to tell you a sob story, of course, because they want more benefits, right? That's a very cynical way to approach people. And it's not how I thought about the people I was interviewing, but it occurred to me it would be useful to bring in some other voices in addition to Medicaid beneficiaries' voices to help us to understand the richness of the set of actors involved in the process. This is another show about Medicaid. And I understand there's an online petition to change the name of the show to Twimmel this, this week in <laughs> Medicaid law. Uh, we're resisting that because that's a silly name for a show. So let's dive a little bit into this idea of Medicaid variability. And I, I guess, to my mind, there are sort of about sort of four groups 
of variability types that could be represented by a state Medicaid program. You could have differentiation on the basis of eligibility. For example, does a state only take the mandatory groups or does it add one or more of the optional groups? Most recently, of course, changes in the Affordable Care Act allow for expanded eligibility based on federal poverty level. Uh, Equally, we have the current Utah request for partial waiver, which actually would limit uh, things to 100% FPL, although that was denied for Arkansas, so probably will go down. Um, With the latest round of Section 1115 waivers, we've seen eligibility being premised or conditioned on premium payments, work requirements, restrictive timeframes for showing eligibility and other administrative barriers that sort of potentially render the eligible ineligible. I think the second sort of rough variable would be services provided. Many, many variables here. I mean, you can have relatively basic healthcare services, but you could expand to case management, freestanding ambulatory, diagnostic, preventative services, community-based services, transportation, things like that. A third way you could see states varying uh, their Medicaid would be in quality. How hard are they following up on claims of poor quality? Are they just, you know, checking the false claim box using quality proxies such as licensure and implied certification claims, cases, and so on? Or are you in a state that takes regulation and enforcement, particularly of nursing homes and home health, very seriously? And then a fourth variable, and really into the weeds, is that although you have FMAP, which should sort of even things out a little bit, it doesn't really, so you have variabilities in reimbursement. So I guess, you know, you've got these sort of metrics of potential variability. And I wondered from your work where you see the most of this. I'm guessing you're going to say eligibility or services, but I'm really interested in this piece. Uh, That is a great question. This is what makes it fun to have these conversations with people who are really into this because they can ask the best questions. So I think I would say that the the first two variability types are probably the ones that came up the most in the book, although... I think the third around quality um, is one that factors in as well. Um, And I'll specify. So, I mean, obviously I was writing the book before this latest wave of 1115 waivers, right? So the issues around work requirements um, and time limits and some of the sort of newer things that are now emerging weren't on the table per se, but beneficiaries still talked a lot about eligibility. And in particular, there was a sense that eligibility was apt to change, right? From one year to the next or from one um, time period to the next, people would get a sense that they were either eligible at one point and not at the other, or that the sort of contours of their eligibility had changed. And so that in a very direct way shaped people's experiences of the program. And one of the reasons eligibility is so important is because it's salient, it's visible to people. There's, There's no ignoring it because it's a sort of low bar for whether or not you can even be a part of the program. You know, that the sort of next stage in is the services 
was provided. So that second form of variability that you point out. And I appreciate the range in what you mentioned. And that range really reflects the range of things that beneficiaries talk to me about. So they would bring up transportation and how, you know, when they lived in one county, they had great transportation to and from their doctors. And when they moved to a more rural county, they had less positive experiences as far as access to transportation. And and they would talk about everything from their ability to access dental care, vision, podiatry, I mean, the full range. This is another thing that is, uh, for the most part, very salient to people. So when you have some sort of need, when you need physical therapy, when you need a hearing aid, fill in the blank, and you cannot get that thing, you know it. And you remember that as a core part of your experience with Medicaid. You know, as far as quality, I focus a a bit on this perspective in the book by thinking about problems that Medicaid beneficiaries encounter, challenges as far as receiving their benefits or utilizing their benefits, and how those problems are addressed, right? And so this sort of points more toward the administrative end of Medicaid. So it's it's less about policy design and what states and the federal government make decisions about in terms of eligibility and services covered, but more about administration. When there's a problem, um, when you cannot receive a certain benefit that you're supposed to be receiving, or when something uh, wasn't paid for when it was supposed to be, or when you go to, even when you go to a healthcare provider and have a really negative experience and you issue some sort of a complaint, you file a fair hearing, you take action to try to see something done in this in response to your challenge. Do you live in a place that will be responsive to your problem or not? And what I find is that there, again, is wide variation in this, not by states per se, although there's state variation, but this really is about what's happening locally in counties. And so the focus on quality really takes us to the level of administration and, and brings us below the kind of state policy level that we can often focus on in in broad discourse around Medicaid and really down to the ground in terms of what people are facing when they have some sort of a problem. Uh, This last category of reimbursement is is less uh, prominent, I think partially because it's in the weeds and so it's not connected to Medicaid beneficiaries' experiences. They don't think about it in as as explicit terms. They don't talk about it. One way that it it arises, though, is around beneficiaries having challenges finding care providers. Uh And so they don't they don't know that this is related to decisions about reimbursement and reimbursement rates. But, you know, from my vantage point as a scholar, I understand that the fact that some beneficiaries have challenges finding providers and others don't is connected back to decisions being made on the policy uh, design level. So I loved one of the descriptions of a state Medicaid system that one of your interviewees brought to the book, and that was, quote, the Arizona Healthcare Cost Containment System which was uh, this uh, interviewee's uh, view of the Arizona Medicaid system. And that idea of Medicaid and cost containment and the sort of the process indignities that I thought came out through your work and that we also have seen in other work like Kiara Bridges' The Poverty of Privacy Rights, where she looked, as as you looked, at how Medicaid recipients are being treated and how they are almost uh, have some of their, quote, rights taken away by bad process. 
Is is that something that that you really saw in your work? Absolutely. I think um, uh, one of the things that this is one of the things that I wasn't sure going in whether I would see, right? I mean, political scientists have a story about programs, for example, like cash assistance, like welfare programs, that these programs are stigmatized. And so people are often in the process of getting benefits going to be treated badly. And we have evidence to suggest this is true. But Medicaid doesn't easily fall into that category. And so and healthcare is something that many people view as something that should be broadly and widely accessible. And I wasn't sure if we would really see these kinds of, I like the way you put it, process and dignities uh, in the realm of Medicaid. And, and it turns out that there are plenty of them there. You know, this this notion of everything from the very name of the program, right? The Arizona Healthcare Cost Containment System to what you encounter when you when you walk into the building, the way that you're interacting, um, what I call citizen bureaucrat interactions, frankly, even before you walk into the building, in, in one of the later chapters in, in chapter six, I focus on how part of the process is navigating your, and this is something that's easy to overlook, but navigating your community to be able to even utilize Medicaid benefits, right? And so if you go to a clinic that is visibly falling apart on the outside, and in order to get there, you have to pass people who are doing drugs or shooting up on the street, and you have to potentially risk being in a high crime area, then you go to this clinic and a lot of people... It, it was interesting. People I interview in the book would call the clinics Medicaid clinics, right? It's not that the clinic was sort of officially, uh, you know, an arm of Medicaid, but that so many of the people in the clinic were being were being insured through Medicaid that people thought of that place as an instantiation of Medicaid. So everything from actual interactions with bureaucrats to the places that you experience these benefits can create opportunities for people to experience indignities. And, and they're, they're, it's not lost on them what that means about their place in the political community more broadly and what it means about whether they should bother trying to make their political voices heard. And that provides us with a great segue uh, to the portions of the book about the relationship between Medicaid and uh, its structure and political participation. And I think it really helps us make sense of a lot of the divides and the proliferating inequality that we see in the U.S. today. And I mean, not to do a spoiler here, but you know, you explain very early on in the book that in chapter four, you essentially show that Medicaid can increase political participation for beneficiaries living in states offering a wide scope of services, fiscally equipped bureaucracies, and expanding programs. And uh, by contrast, I imagine the converse is that when you have bad programs, contracting eligibility, or a lot of difficulty finding services, that this discourages participation. And your findings here really reminded me of uh, Jennifer Silva's work in, in her book called Coming Up Short, where she talked about, you know, her, her problematic was, why do young people who would seemingly benefit most from social safety nets and solidarity cling so fiercely to neoliberal ideals of untrammeled individualism and why are they so distrustful of the states and of redistribution? And I think what your work is showing is, you know, it seems as though there's a rich get richer dynamic where if people feel good about what the state is doing and feel good about their Medicaid program, there's a an effect of getting them involved and uh, willing to defend and fight for it. Whereas the, there's sort of a doom loop in many areas where the worse it gets, the less people are involved and the less, less accountability is, there is for the political forces that are making the program works. Is this idea of a virtuous circle and vicious circle, are, are these sort of at the core of the findings in your research? Yes, certainly. I mean, part of what I was trying to understand in the first instance when I really started to go down the path of writing this book was 
how we could understand how we could sort of grapple with the role that ordinary people play in sustaining and maintaining a program like Medicaid, right? And you know, what I found is not necessarily what I would hope to find because doom loop, you know, doesn't sound very fun. It's not what we want to find when we're doing research. And and I often call it the a cycle of disempowerment. And you know, it's it's not unique to Medicaid, but for a program that we would at at, at most we imagine is politically neutral. It's going to provide people with a resource, but it's not going to disempower them or, or put them in a sort of differential position as far as their political voice is concerned. It, it, it's, it, it was um, really eye-opening to see that, that the reality is quite different in that, yes, Medicaid beneficiaries who live in states where benefits are being reduced, where the scope of, service, of optional services is really limited, and where bureaucracies are sort of tightly strapped. There aren't um, enough bureaucrats relative to the number of people who are living in poverty who are being served by these programs, when those features are in place, we see Medicaid beneficiaries being substantially less likely to participate in politics. And we think about that as voting. I also think about it beyond voting, being a part of a political group, taking part in some sort of local community action, um, being a part of a demonstration. There, are, We can think about what, what political outcomes we care about quite broadly. And what we find is, is relatively similar results, which is that Medicaid programs are state Medicaid programs with these features uh, tend to exert a sort of dampening effect on political behavior. One of the reasons why I include the sort of, and maybe I center the converse of that, which is it's possible for Medicaid to be a boon, is because part of what folks would say to me is like, well, you know, the conservatives are going to love this. They're going to say, look, this program is making people stop voting. That's why we should cut it. And I, I'm pretty clear early on in the book about that not being the takeaway, right? The takeaway is that this isn't an inevitable thing. This is a feature of policy design. And we can design policy differently and provide benefits differently such that indeed Medicaid is actually going to incorporate beneficiaries who tend to be more disadvantaged anyway into the political process and make the political system more equitable. But that's not what happens by and large, but it's important that it it does sometimes happen and it can happen, right? And the question is, how can we make this a part of what we're thinking about when we think about Medicaid's possibilities and also Medicaid's problem. So I guess when we look at work such as yours and the the highlights and the lowlights, you know, when you compare healthcare provisions in the Northeast with what some of your commentators talked about in Georgia, Mississippi, and so on, if you take your sort of map, if you like, of the states from your book, and you look at the Medicaid expansion map, there appear to be some rough similarities. I mean, you've got the plain states who tended not to expand, and then you've got the South and the Deep South that didn't. How how do we want to approach racism and disparities in talking about these Medicaid differentials? Um, and, you know, by that, I don't necessarily mean explicit racism. Um, our good friend Dana Matthews, Just Medicine piece on implicit biases uh, is an extraordinary piece of work. But how, how do you factor that both sort of deep historical issue, but also, you know, 
throw a somewhat dangerous stereotype into this discussion? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. And I appreciate it because it's one that folks are sometimes reluctant to bring up. I mean, I, I address this in part in, in, in every chapter, right? In, in the chapter where I think about the kind of the history of geographic and other inequities in the Medicaid program, you know, I point to the sort of consistent role of folks who were concerned about losing their ability to exercise, quote unquote, discretion in who received Medicaid benefits. And, and a lot of that was political elites in the South who wanted to be able to discriminate, right? And who sort of, who waved the banner of states' rights as a way of trying to ensure the political and policy space that they needed to be able to discriminate. And so obviously that was rather explicit at that time. But we haven't stayed there, right? There's been a development over time and things have changed. And so one of the things that, that's important to sort of point out is that we can have the perpetuation of a system that undergirds really deep disparities, racial disparities, and also class disparities, economic disparities, without any one sort of scheming in a way that's sort of overt to make it such, right? And part of this is that federalism allows states with, with a lot of flexibility. Certainly, the federal government sets certain um, uniform standards and exercises some power, largely because it's funding these programs. But for the most part, states have really wide latitude. And that means that whatever their political histories are, whatever their um, the sort of path dependent processes that have occurred in those states look like will matter for what Medicaid looks like. And the reality is that irrespective of, of people, whether people are sort of explicitly racist, the policy processes in places like the Deep South um, have unfolded in ways over many years that mean that it's very difficult at this point to extricate racial biases um, and, and sort of deep institutional race and class biases from those systems, right? So to the extent that states have control, one of the things that, that, that we have to deal with is the kind of inequality that emerges from that. And that inequality is almost always racialized. Uh, one of the things I, I talk about the sort of overlap in the book between what the Medicaid expansion map looks like, and we can think about other maps as well that reference different kinds of inequalities and the kind composition of these states in terms of their racial composition and the number of people living in states in poverty. And it's certainly the case that the states that have more African-Americans also fare pretty badly um, in terms of the different kinds of policy design decisions that I talk about as affecting Medicaid beneficiaries political engagement. And so this is on top of just being challenging generally, it's challenging with respect to those of us who have an eye towards uh, racial equality in our political system, because to the extent that there's a cycle of disempowerment, it's not equal opportunity disempowerment. It's disempowerment that's going to fall most heavily on people of color and on people who are living in poverty. And that is exacerbating current disadvantages in our political system. And, and it should be even more alarming and make us think even more deeply about which aspects of Medicaid policy design we want to allow to sort of have this proliferating inequality. And it's a perfect time to think about this. Things like work requirements and time limits and I mean everything, right? All of the, the, the sorts of measures that have been suggested 
COVID in the last year or so, all of these things have implications for equality, both racial equality and economic equality, and not just in terms of those demographic measure metrics, but also in terms of the political equality for people of color and for people who are living in poverty. So race is at the front and center of this of the story I tell, and it's constantly emerging in each chapter because there's no real way around it. And it's not about people being evil racist. It's about institutions operating the way they operate and the way they have historically operated in this country, which is in certain places as purveyors of racial inequality. And that will not stop naturally. It will stop if we're aware of it and think about what we can do about it. So I wanted to be sure uh, to convey the message of the ending of the book, Jamila, because I think it's just so important uh, for a lot of health policy folks to hear. And essentially, your bottom line with respect to the relationship between federalism and the participation of a lot of beneficiaries is that it's not just a story about Medicaid. It's a story of that federalism unevenly erodes the propensity to participate among a lot of key social policy beneficiaries. And I think this is so critical because right now, if I were to convey what the emerging consensus technocratic liberal response to Trumpism and Trumpist healthcare, it would probably be something along the lines of, well, we've got to really devolve more responsibilities to the states, enable more pluralism, more diversity among the different types and levels of Medicaid coverage, because there is just such a tension. There's such tension, and it appears to be ineradicable tension between the Republican and Democratic visions of what a good healthcare system will look like. And it seems like the message of your book is that if you permit and try to accommodate these differing levels of Medicaid coverage, of eligibility, of quality of service, you're not merely accommodating them, but you're effectively exacerbating these disparities because of the dynamics that you've exposed in your book. Would, would that be correct? And do you think that that leads anywhere with respect to the future of health policy? Yeah, I, I think that's an appropriate, it's an accurate characterization. Look, when I was writing, when I started writing this book, President Obama was in office and I was I was thinking about this project in light of the Affordable Care Act. And honestly, my sort of gut bias was towards thinking that the sort of federal level was the preferable level for making change happen in the arena of health policy. As I neared the sort of very end and the editing process, we got a new president. And whereas before it was easy for me to think of federalism as a problem, part of what I what I had to rethink toward the end of my process was, well, now a lot of folks feel differently about federalism. And they're glad that states have discretion and that they can take action, for example, to provide some sort of protective measure for the beneficiaries in their state. And, and of course, I think that's great as well. If, if, if it's a choice of, you know, providing benefits or providing protections for people in New York and people in California, we should do it even if people in Mississippi and Alabama might not get those same protections, right? So it's not to say that this idea that, you know, the activity that happens in the states is going to be where much of the action is now because there's just so much tension at the federal level and there's so much intergovernmental tension. You know, that's a very practical, logical argument. And it's one that in many senses I share, but I think that it's important when we think broadly, right, beyond this 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 present presidential administration and over the sort of longer term, when we think about goals for health policy. One of the things that should be sort of foremost in our minds as an important way to gauge what success looks like as far as implementing policy is to prioritize equity. And so maybe in, in one or the other political moment, we simply cannot do that.
right? And so we get as many, as much access to as many people as we can or whatever other goals we think are appropriate. But in the longer term, um, and even during those short term spans, it's really important for health policy folks to be always pressing on the issue of equity and thinking about the fact that we cannot simply leave behind the folks in states that prove more difficult or more challenging because that does exacerbate a broader system of inequality and 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 sort of uneven political representation and voice and so that might mean devoting energy to some of these more difficult places working even harder to mobilize beneficiaries in those places because if policy will push against their mobilization then maybe healthcare advocates or others should push towards it and so there's different ways of thinking about this and I'm I'm kind of cautious in the book about sort of concrete policy prescriptions because I think it's way too complicated to do that um, overly blithely. But I also think I want to make the case that equity has to be a part of the discourse at every stage uh, or else we will end up with a system that is fragmented in ways that undermine democracy, even though at every point along the way, we were simply doing what it seemed like practical political necessities dictated. Yes, I think that's that's very well stated. I've tended to characterize sort of the ACA version of Medicaid as health insurance, while sort of the pre-ACA, you know, 65 to 2010, and the current CMS views perhaps see it more as welfare for the deserving poor. And I think your research makes me think I have this a little bit wrong, that both versions, the insurance version and the welfare version exist. It just depends where you live. Do we now have therefore a new and very important argument in favor of healthcare universality, which is a need for equal treatment across the country. I absolutely think so. I think that you're right. I mean, part of what what the kind of deeper worry about these 1115 waivers that I have outside of the specifics of each individual waiver is this broader push towards what I often term the welfareization of Medicaid. And in many places, Medicaid is and for a long time has been uh, treated and structured as health insurance, which is which I think comports with the original version of our, our vision for what Medicaid would be and comports with what it should be, with what the need is. Uh, but there is a push, and, and I think it started quite some time ago, but is now really sort of coming into full force to, to make Medicaid seem more to the public and feel more, as far as policy is concerned, like TANF, like cash assistance. And what that does is it weakens the program politically, and it does it through some of the mechanisms that I point out in the book. It's why we should be worried about the waivers, not just because um, because they're worrisome in and of themselves, and they are, but because they have troubling implications for democratic citizenship. But, you know, I always say sort of jokingly, but seriously, that, you know, one way around this is universal healthcare. Everyone has access, and that access is uniform. And there are things that we would give up under that sort of a system. And so I always say the caveat for me is that it has to be universal, generous healthcare. Right. Um, You know, I've had folks who say, okay, universal, but it's going to be catastrophic coverage and it's going to be bare minimum, bare bones. And so it's not to say that universal is the only thing that matters or that uniform or equal access is the only thing that matters. The substance and quality of that care is also going to be tremendously important. But certainly, unless there is a logic that we can assert for why what state you live in should matter for the kind of access you can have to health services. And I haven't, I don't hear that kind 
kind of logic articulated ever. And without that logic, it's not clear to me what justifies the, the system as it's structured now, besides just the sort of politics and a path dependency. And this is what we have. This is what we've always had. It's not to say that federalism should go away. It's obviously not going to go anywhere. But when it comes to healthcare, I, I don't hear often a logic that really justifies the system as it is currently structured. There's not any reason why a mother, a young mother in New York should have more than a young mother in Georgia or Mississippi or Oklahoma. And most people, if you ask them that, they will say, well, no, of course it shouldn't matter. It's healthcare. Uh, without realizing that our political system says it matters and says it matters a lot, right? To the point of whether or not your illness can get treated, whether or not you'll be able to access hospice care as an adult. I mean, really deep, pro- profound um, experiences, health experiences and challenges that are largely contingent on where you live. I, I, it's not clear at all to me what the reason for that is as far as the principled reason, um, the reason that can justify the system as it is. Um, and without that, I think the, the choice, as far as I'm concerned, is a system that is more fair and more equitable. And that is universal. Obviously, that may not seem politically feasible, and it may be more or less popular depending on who's listening. But it is part of what I think is demanded based on the sort of present state of affairs. And that was the week in health law. A big thank you to Professor Mishner for joining us. You can find her on Twitter at Poverty Scholar. Well played there. Excellent. At Poverty Scholar. Thank you so much for joining us, Jamila. That was really fascinating stuff. Thank you for having me. We post our show notes at twill.com. I'm at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank, where are you hanging out this week? At Frank Pasquale on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week.